All right, if you have a Bible, you can grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 18. Uh, and again, good morning. It's good to see all of you, especially those of you who are first-time guests with us. Welcome. We are so glad that you're here. And if I've not had the uh, privilege and opportunity to get the chance to shake your hand, I would love to do that. Uh, if you don't have to roll out too fast because you've got something going on. If you do, that just means you have to come back next week so that we can shake hands then. But either way, we're going to be in Luke 18, page 877 in the Bibles that are around you. If you don't have a Bible, please grab those, open it up. Uh, it's going to make a whole lot more sense if you look at it. And also, for your benefit, it's going to go a lot faster if you have a Bible open in front of you as well. Um, one of the things that can happen a lot of times when we read scripture or just go through it section by section like we do in here is that sometimes you can lose uh, the forest for the trees. And so like if you think about any trail that you've ever walked on, sometimes you know it's really thick and you can't see through the trees so you don't realize the forest that's all around you. But every now and then you get that clearing where you can actually say, whoa, there's a whole lot around me that I was just kind of trapped in. And sometimes when we come to scripture that that happens and 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 it can happen in, in big pieces and in small pieces. So, for example, whenever you're reading Scripture, you've got to read that passage in the context of the chapter. And that chapter in the context of the entire book. That book in the context of whatever testament it's in, old or new. And that within the context of the entire meta narrative of Scripture. The whole story that's going through all of Scripture. And so, small and big, context is everything. And in chapter 18, we're at right now, there's some context that I think maybe we've been missing a little bit because we've been, you know, the trees have been so close. Because once you get to chapter 17, towards the end, Jesus enters into a period where he's talking a, a lot about the kingdom of God. And so at the end of chapter 17, he started talking about what the kingdom of God is and what it's like, all right, that it's already here in some uh, elements, but it's not yet fully here, and it won't fully be here until Christ returns and brings in the new heavens and the new earth. So we have that already not yet paradigm. And then when you get into chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, he starts talking about what life is like, all right, in that already not yet paradigm. That why, until Christ comes again, we've got we've to you know, keep the faith, we've got to persevere, we've got to pray. And he begins teaching with contrasts. And so there he teaches in contrasts an unjust judge with our perfect heavenly father. And that if an unjust judge will grant a widow's request, how much more will our perfect heavenly father hear us and respond to us? And then when we get to verse 9, he continues with contrasting different types of people, but he moves into talking specifically about how we enter the kingdom of God. Not how we live uh, in this already not yet paradigm, but how we actually enter into the kingdom of God. And so the, the comparison and contrast in verses 9 through 14 are the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we learn that the one who gets into the kingdom of God, the only sinner who ever comes into the kingdom of God, is not the smug moralist, but the one who beats his chest and begs God for mercy, who recognizes his sinfulness and begs God for mercy. And then we get into verses 15 through 30, and this same idea of who enters into the kingdom of God is still at play with some, you know, contrasting people. And so he begins by talking about infants, about children, and then he contrasts that with a self-reliant rich ruler. 
And the, the lesson we learn out of that, the, the point that Jesus is making in that, is that those who enter into the kingdom of God are not the self-reliant rich rulers who think they can do it on their own, but those who come to the kingdom like an infant. And what is an infant? Helpless and utterly dependent. And so last week we talked about the first part of this contrast with the children and the self-reliant uh, ruler who, you know, who's an idolater. We're going to talk a lot about that today. So we did children last week. Today we're going to focus on that second part. This self-reliant, idolater, rich ruler. And we're going to really just kind of try to frame it around three thoughts. Three things that we see here and that we learn here. Something about Jesus. Something about ourselves. And then something about how it is, I mean, our only hope at getting into the kingdom of God. And so that's the way we're going to make our way through this. Those three things, learn a little bit about Jesus, learn a little bit about ourselves, and then our only hope at actually becoming uh, part of the kingdom of God. Because that's what this whole section is about, the kingdom of God and specifically entering the kingdom of God. And so to kind of give us that context, let's go back to verse 9. And begin reading and we'll make our way through this explaining it as we go. So page 877 verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, will not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so verse 18, the rich ruler, right, probably a civil magistrate in the area, all right, contrasting this completely not like the infant, all right, affluent, self-reliant, all of these things. He's been standing nearby, listening to this conversation, watching Jesus bless the children and hearing Jesus say that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a child. And so he then thinking comes to Jesus and asks a question. And so verse 18 and a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so this is a really good question. If, you were, you know, if you're doing evangelism, this is the softball. You hope someone will come and ask you. All right. And Jesus is going to answer the question in a minute. But first, I want you to see what Jesus does. Because the first thing he does is he wants this guy to see and understand that he's not just a good teacher, but that he's God. And that's going to be number one in your notes. So number one, Jesus is God. All right, Jesus, something about Jesus, something about ourselves, and then something about salvation. Number one, something about Jesus. Jesus is God. And so look at verse 19. All right, before he answers this question, 
Here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so the rich young ruler, he initially approaches Jesus like many of us do or did when we first started kind of hearing about Jesus and thinking about Jesus, that he's a good teacher. He's a good teacher. He's one of the world's best leaders. And so we put him in a category with Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa and um, George Washington and uh, Dr. King and all these people who are just great leaders, revolutionaries. All right. And he healed people and Jesus was morally pure. He's a great example for us to follow. And so that's how this rich ruler initially approached Jesus. And so he says, good teacher. And Jesus doesn't deny what he says, but he wants to take the man a little bit deeper and take that thought to its logical conclusion. And so it's kind of like he said, you said that I'm good and you're right. Okay, but biblically, the Bible, all right, the Bible says that only God is good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so God is the definition of good. All right. He's the definition of good. If he is good, that's what goodness is. So he's got a lock on goodness. And so we operate in this sliding scale of bad to good. And somewhere people are on this, you know, this sliding scale, depending upon what's going on. God doesn't operate that way. He's got two categories, sinless and sinner. And he is the only one in the sinless camp. All of us are over here in the sinner camp. So he alone is good. Right? He alone. And so the logical outworking Jesus is trying to get this guy to see is that if he is good, if Jesus is good, and if the Bible says that only God is good, that means that Jesus is not just a good man, but that he's the God man. Right? He's God in the flesh. God incarnate. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And so it's like Jesus is saying, think, man, think. Think what you're saying here. Because what you're saying is true, and it's way more true and way deeper than you realize. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just a good man. I'm the God man. And in our world today, we also need to think. As we postulate about Jesus, we need to think. Because some of us, we still regard Jesus as a good teacher. That's how we approach him. But I want you to think about this, kind of like Jesus is doing here. Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, is constantly claiming to be God. Sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, not, not straightforward like it is here. This isn't as straightforward. Sometimes it's absolutely blatant. Like when he says before the Sanhedrin, before Abraham was, I am. And they scream blasphemer. I mean, this is why Jesus got crucified, because he constantly claimed to be God. And so I want you to think, all right, if you hold that Jesus is a good teacher, think about this. If he's just a man, all right, and you think he's just a good teacher, good teachers don't claim to be God. They would not be a good teacher. They would be some David Koresh crazy person. That's who claims to be God. So Jesus cannot just be a good teacher. 
C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, picks up on this exact train of thought. It's pretty famous if you have any background in Christianity. You've read this, heard this. If you haven't, this is a good little, uh, good little paragraph to think through. I'll read it to you. C.S. Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said, that, said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so if Jesus is not a lunatic... And if Jesus is not a liar, then logically, the only thing left to us is that he is who he says he is, the very son of God. So number one, Jesus is God. And now verse 20, we get into Jesus starting to answer the question that this guy asks about how he can inherit eternal life. And so look at verse 20 with me. And we'll start in verse 19. Well, just verse 20, yeah. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And so Jesus, in response to this question, how can I inherit eternal life, just kind of trots out the Ten Commandments. All right? You want to enter the kingdom of God, then obey the law perfectly. And he starts just with the last five of the Ten Commandments, let alone the other 603 commandments that are in the Old Testament for a total of 613. So he trots those out there, and then the guy replies like this, verse 21, and he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack then, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. And so what's happening here is not that Jesus is teaching that we can be saved by our works. Just go, give all your money away, and you will guarantee that you will be in the kingdom of God. Jesus is not teaching that here. Instead, Jesus sees this man's heart and his mind, just as he sees our hearts and our minds, and he exposes the idolatry that is in this man's heart. He exposes that this man is an idolater, that he does not even keep the first commandment, which says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And if you don't keep that one, it is impossible to keep any of the others. And so Jesus is exposing this man's idolatry and that his true God, lowercase g, is money. And so make sure that you understand, God is not only concerned with your outward actions. 
I mean, he is concerned with that, but not only, he's also concerned with, and maybe even more so, concerned with our hearts. Because while this guy has apparent outward obedience, and we would all see this guy and be like, man, that guy's awesome. I mean, he, he's never, you know, murdered anybody. That's always a good thing to start with. But he's, he's also been faithful to his wife. He doesn't steal. He doesn't embezzle. He doesn't rob the company. Right? All these, he honors his mom and dad. He doesn't lie. So while he has this impeccable outward moral record, inwardly though, he's far from God. And so Jesus isn't trying to change this man's behavior here. He's trying to change this man's God, which is a much bigger deal for him and for us. And so he exposes the man, that he's an idolater. And ladies and gentlemen, so are we. Everybody in this room is an idolater. There's not one who isn't. And so happy notes, number one, Jesus is God. Happy notes, number two, we are idolaters. It's who we are. We are idolaters. So let's talk about, we're going to spend some time here. Let's, let's break down idolatry a little bit and just kind of think through it. And so let's, what is idolatry? Just ask that question. What is idolatry? Idolatry is worshiping the wrong God. That's what it is. It's worshiping the wrong God. I mean, is this not what every act of sin is? Every single time we sin, in that moment, because we are worshipers, God created us for worship and we're always worshiping. It's just what are we worshiping? So in that moment, we're worshiping something other than God. You find something else more pleasing. You find something else more satisfying. You find something else more secure. And you value someone or something or some experience more than you do God. All right? And so in that moment, at least, you kick God to the curb and you give your heart to this other thing. Idolatry. All right? It's worshiping the wrong God. And so what do you find yourself bowing down to? What is the proclivity of your heart to find your satisfaction, your hope, your security, your joy in? Is it your job or your money like this guy? I mean, while Jesus is exposing this guy's idol of, of money and asking him to give it all away... What would, you, what, what, what would you say if Jesus asked you to give it all away? Would you? Or what if he just asked you to give 10% away? Do you? Is money your idol? Do you worship? Do you, do you need it? You can't part with it. Got to have it. Maybe your standard of living is your idol. Maybe your reputation is your idol. How people view you. How people think of you. We can make anything our idol. Maybe politics is your idol. If we just get the right people in, everything's going to be great. Maybe your idol is sex. And you bow the knee to the God of sex. And you're worshiping something other than God. Or maybe it's food. And your life revolves around the worship of food. And you run to a bag of potato chips for comfort. When you're low. Or you run to them when you're high. 
when you're happy. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a case of the munchies. I'm going to get it together. Hang on. <laughs> but what I want you to see, what I want you to see is what John Calvin said 500 years ago, that our hearts, they are idol factories. They are constantly producing idols, constructing idols, and then maybe we fight that one down and it just constructs another one just over and over and over, constantly constructing these idols that we give our lives to. And they change. And a lot of times, they're really, really good things. And so that's kind of the second thing I want to ask here. How, how does idolatry usually happen in our lives? How does idolatry usually happen in our lives? And here's how it usually happens. We take good things, family, spouses, jobs, money, work, sex, food, reputation. All, all these things are fine. They're good. And we elevate them, though, to God-like status. And it goes from being something that the Lord gives to being our functional Lord. Our substitute Lord. And so it becomes the most important person, thing, experience, possession, achievement all right, in our whole lives. And we make that preeminent and we worship it and we make sacrifices to it. We'll sacrifice our time for it. We'll sacrifice our health for it. We'll sacrifice our money and so we'll say no to really good things so that we can say yes to our idol, to our pet, to our God. And again, that usually starts with good things. Family, spouse, all these are good, good things. And in Nowensville, as I look around, the most prominent ones that I see in this area are the idolization of our standard of living, expressed often through entitlement, and idolization of children and family. Again, good things, but we elevate them to godlike status, make crazy sacrifices, and now we're idolaters. And so I'm a former college athlete, so I can pick on athletics for a minute, and so I'm going to for just a minute. And this may step on some toes. I'm sorry, not sorry. This is because I love you. No one needs to be playing travel sports at the age of seven. Let your child be a kid. They're not going to go pro. They're not going to go pro. The likelihood of your child making millions in professional athletics is the same as that of getting struck by lightning while getting bitten by a shark that came off of a sharknado. <laughs> They're not going pro. And so if you are constantly, I'm not talking about every now and then, that, that's fine. But if you are constantly missing, missing the worship of God with the family of God for travel athletics, what are you worshiping? Somebody's like, well, they might get a scholarship. Same question, what are you worshiping? All you did now is shift the idol from sports to money. And I get it. I was this guy. I got a scholarship. If you want to be successful in things, it will take sacrifice. It will take time. It will take hard work. But don't let it become your God to where it controls 
your life. I've been there. It's a sin against God, and it will go bad. If it were possible, I could go pro at idol making. I am a, I mean, I'd go all pro. Not only just pro, but I'd be an all pro idol maker. Growing up, it was perfect grades and sports. As I got into high school, it transitioned to just the most basic of sports where you don't actually need skills. You just have to run fast. And my idol was that. Winning races, having state championships, being praised, go, getting collegiate offers, going on recruiting trips. And this continued through college till the Lord in His grace broke me. And I saw the error of my ways. And after that happened, I foolishly thought, okay, now I know what idolatry is and I won't ever struggle with that again. I get it. Idol factory. I mean, idolatry is like those candles that I hate on birthday cakes where you blow them out and they just reignite and you blow them out and they just reignite. And you... That's idolatry. That's our hearts. And so over the next few years, a subtle, I mean, got married, started having kids, a subtle idolatry snuck into my life. And maybe it's in your life as well. And it's this, and it's an idolatry that remained hidden because it was never at risk. It was never, you know, it was always safe. It was always secure, never threatened. And then Eden was born and it came alive. And it was just this idol of just the perfect little Christian family. Everything's okay and you know, relative comfort, minimal stress, minimal difficulty, minimal suffering. Behaved kids excel in everything. They get good grades. They'll go to a good college, get a good job, marry the perfect husband and have the perfect little godly family. All good things, right? All good things. But it had become my idol. And then Eden was born and it exposed me. It exposed me. And it was, God was saying, is that really what life is all about, Joe? Those things? How shallow are you, preacher boy? Are things not about me? What if they don't excel at everything? What if my kids struggle to walk and talk and run and jump? What if they don't get good grades? What if reading is tough? What if potty training is maybe not even possible? What if they don't get a job, don't get married, don't have a family, can't live on their own, but live with us the rest of our lives, meaning we can't travel and do the things that we had hoped to do and dreamed about when we first got married? And so as I sat up in the hospital all night long after the diagnosis was made, you know, all these sorts of things, and I'm just, this is running through my mind, and I'm just being completely selfish, self-centered, and thinking about what this meant for my life, and just having a pity party because I wanted my old life back. I realized in that moment, it's not my old life I want back, it's my old idols. I want my idols back. I love my idols. I want my idols. I crave my idols. And my idols are being taken from me. Idolatry. It's a beast. And so I repented before God. And I still have to repent. It just keeps reigniting. The candle won't go out. It's my selfish proclivity towards other things and not God. The supreme reality of the universe. I worship creation 
and not the creator. And so what about you? What are your idols? What are your proclivities? What are your functional saviors? We've all got them. Calvin's right. Idol factories. What are they? What is it you can't live without? Can't imagine your life without? That might be an idol. And again, they're usually good things. We just elevate them to a status that they can't bear. And we'll crush our loved ones under that if we expect them to bear the weight that only God is supposed to bear. And so what are they? Lay them on the proverbial altar for the glory of God and your own good because idols, listen to me, they lie to you. They lie to you. They overpromise and underdeliver always. Ecclesiastes 3, God says that He put eternity into our heart. So the only thing that can satisfy that is God Himself, not God-created things, not God-replacements we try to come up with. Never satisfy. The only thing that can satisfy is the God of eternity. So stop drinking the Kool-Aid of your puny God and repent and turn back to God. Jesus is teaching here, if you love yourself more than Christ, you can't be His disciple. If you love your possessions more than Christ, you can't be His disciple. Eternal life is only for those who love the Lord their God with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. Far more than self and far more than worldly possessions. And so if that is true, if that's what it takes, then what hope do we have? Because I don't do that. I don't do that perfectly. I fail at that. And those standing around Jesus and the rich ruler ask the same thing. We'll back at verse 22. We'll get it all together here. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Uh, Who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so people were amazed. They they thought if anybody was going to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's this guy with his wealth and his moral record. I mean, they had a little functional prosperity gospel going on. Oh, God, like if you are rich and wealthy and powerful, then you must be living for God because he has blessed you. Right? Which means Jesus was not living for God, if that's the reality. Because he was homeless. It means Paul and Peter and all the disciples who got their heads chopped off or crucified upside down, whipped, beaten, weren't living for Jesus, right? Because Jesus blesses people. He makes them rich if they're, right? I mean, this is what we do with our idolatry even. And people will take this to churches and they will teach this. And they basically teach that Jesus is in the idol-granting business. 
So if you come to my church and you trust Jesus, you'll get your idol. What's your idol? You want money? Then send in, sow in faith, and God's going to bless you and give you a lot of money. You want health? Well, send in $9.99. I'll send you a hanky with my sweat on it, and you can wipe that on yourself, and you are going to be healthy. Just name it and claim it and believe it and receive it. That's not in the pages of Scripture. And so people are amazed. Of course it's this guy. He's got a great moral record. He's rich. He's powerful. He's, I mean, this is a great guy right here. And Jesus lays down a statement that should scare every single American. Every single person who lives in this area. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person enter the kingdom of God. I mean, in comparison to the world, every person in this room is in the top 3% of the world as it relates to wealth. 97th percentile, every single person in this room. And so this should at least scare us because he's talking to us. And sometimes people will take this verse and they'll try to explain it and they'll be like, well, there's this weird thread and it was really thick thread and it was called camel thread and it was harder to get the camel thread through the eye of a needle. That's what Jesus was talking about. Or they'll be like, well, there's this, there's a wall around Jerusalem and there was this specific gate that you had to get through and a camel had to take his bags off and everything and dip low to try to get through the gate. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Listen, those are really interesting theories and ideas, but so is the Sasquatch. There's just no proof of it. There's no evidence for that in those thoughts. It's like trying to find an Oompa Loompa running a unicorn down a rainbow. It doesn't exist. What Jesus is doing here is something that we might not think. He's speaking in hyperbole. He's making a joke. He's telling the truth in a very Babylonian bee or the onion type of way. He's using satire, he's using hyperbole, hitting at the truth, but doing it in a funny way. There's no way a camel, the biggest animal the people of Jerusalem had ever seen, is fitting through the eye of a needle. That's the joke he's making. It's, well, what a, it's like a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. It's not going to happen. And what he's teaching is that so often, the idolatry of money in rich people, me and you, is such that the camel fitting through that needle eye is more likely than us entering the kingdom of God. That's why it should scare us a little bit. It should at least shake us and stagger us a little bit how we view money, how we approach money. Do I have a subtle idolatry as it relates to money in my heart? Do I feel more secure, more at peace when I have a bank account that's full or when I trust the one who's never in need? of money? Do I have more security in the money that God gives me or the one who gives the money? But again, these guys are like, I mean, if this, if this is what it takes, if it's this much trust, who can possibly be saved? If you have to live morally perfect and love God with all your heart and all your time, I mean, we all fail. And, and, and that's the whole point of this. He brings us to number three in our notes. That God is our only hope. Right? So Jesus is God. We are idolaters. And God is our only hope. 
our only hope. Because what is impossible for us is possible for Him. I mean, the good news of the gospel, that God is so kind that He sent Jesus to save us because we cannot save ourselves. It's an impossibility. The, the, the heart of the gospel, this is what's so good about it. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did. You can't forgive yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You can't justify yourself before a holy God. Somebody's got to do that for you. And that's what Jesus did. That's why Jesus came. He lived a perfect, sinless, never uh, idolatrous life. And he did it for us because we have not done that. And then the penalty that we owe for our idolatry. Our wickedness, our rebellion against God. Jesus took it upon himself and he suffered and died in our place as our substitute so we don't have to. And then in victory over sin and death, he rose again. And so we cannot save ourselves. It's impossible. But Jesus can because he's God. And with God, all things are possible. All we have to do is receive the kingdom. How? Like a tax collector beating his chest. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Like a child who's utterly helpless and dependent and is falling into the sheer grace of God based upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the kindness of God. On the, Father, on, on the cross, the Father treated Jesus as if he had lived our lives so that he could treat us as if we had lived Jesus' life. And so this is the way. This is how we enter the kingdom of God. This whole section about the kingdom of God, this is how. God is our only hope. And so fall on him. Trust in him and what he has done for us, what Christ has done for us through his life, his death, his resurrection. And so we're going to pray. And I want to give you a chance, though, a little bit of time. I'm going to be silent for a little bit. And I want to give you a chance just to allow the Holy Spirit to maybe massage, maybe prick. And open up your eyes maybe to your proclivity to idolatry. None of us, I mean, it's all different for all of us. But we all are idolaters in some way, shape, or form. It's just what? What do we look to for our security, our happiness, our joy, our hope? What, what is it in your life? And what is it you need to do to change? So we're going to pray silently. And then I'll close this out in prayer. And we will worship once more. Let's pray silently in your own mind.
Father, we are so quick, so quick to look to things to give us joy, to give us satisfaction instead of looking to you. And we wind up on this incessant treadmill of trying to find hope and joy and purpose in things that already have not satisfied us. But we think if we just get more of what has already not satisfied us, then we'll be satisfied. Father, break us of this folly and foolishness. And forgive us, God. Forgive us for the idolatry of our hearts. Looking to things and people and experiences as preeminent in our lives and allowing our lives to be overtaken by them. And we worship them and we make sacrifices to them. And Father, sometimes it's out of ignorance. We don't realize what we're doing. But it's no less damning to us. And so open our eyes, God, to the truth of what we're doing. Help us to see our blatant idolatry and our subtle idolatry that's hidden. And maybe we don't even see it because it's not threatened. But if it was, it would come out in all its ugly glory. Or ugly fury, I guess. And so forgive us, O oh God. And Father, as we walk out of here, I mean, we walk out of this moment where we're thinking about you and repenting and asking you to change us and we walk out into the world and life happens and it's fast and it's just all around us and so holy spirit we need you to remind us of these things that we are thinking through and praying about right now and give us the strength to fight and the courage to take whatever steps are necessary to help fight and beat down whatever idolatry we have in our hearts. But, oh God, thank you that you do forgive. That based upon the blood of Jesus has been poured out for us, paying for our sins that we should pay for, and the perfect life that he lived has been imputed or put on us and we are now clothed with his righteousness not our own that you love us and you adopt us into your family and you don't give up on us when we perform poorly that your love does not vacillate up or down based upon what we do but it's steadfast because it's based upon what christ did nevertheless oh god help us when we're feeling Full of ourselves, bring us low. And when we're feeling guilty and deplorable, pull us up. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.